1: it's hard to think of a microorganism that's been more catastrophic for human health than plasmodium the species of parasites that cause malaria malaria has shaped the course of human history it's said that this disease protected the roman empire from attacks aggressors often lacked immunity to it Though the disease might also have played a role in the fall of that very same empire, with the emergence of new types of mosquito and even deadlier parasites. Today, malaria infects hundreds of millions of people every year and kills hundreds of thousands, most of them children. Scientists and doctors have tried to eradicate the disease for decades, and it's proved impossible so far. But there's new hope on the horizon, technology, money and political will seems to be building. Could a new set of ideas finally achieve the dream and build a future free from malaria? Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist's science correspondent. Today, we're exploring the promising new ways to stamp out malaria. We'll look at the fight against malarial parasites and also against the mosquitoes that carry them. We'll examine new vaccine technologies and even genetically modified mosquitoes. If these radical new tools can be deployed, is it too much to think that malaria could one day be consigned to history? There are almost 250 million cases of malaria recorded by the World Health Organization every year. The disease causes fever and other flu-like symptoms. For some, it's fatal. It's spread by five types of parasite of the species known as Plasmodium. The parasite is transmitted between people by the female of the Anopheles species of mosquito. These insects suck a person's blood to feed. In the process, they pass on any plasmodium parasites they might be harboring.
2: So malaria is a huge problem.
1: That's Sandre Solstad. He's The Economist's senior data journalist. And recently, he's been very interested in malaria.
2: In mosquito-rich environments, it is between 50 and 20 times as contagious as the Omicron variant of SARS-CoV-2. So throw an infected person with malaria into favourable conditions for the parasite, and you're looking at you know 50 to 100 people being infected from that one person alone. And then those in turn, of course, you know infect 50 to 100 and, and so on and so forth. So it's extremely contagious. As a result of this, and because it is a very lethal parasite, it killed about 627,000 people in 2020 alone. Almost all of them live in Africa and in rural areas. And what is particularly horrible about malaria compared to almost any other disease, and especially compared to COVID-19, is that almost all of the people who die or get severely ill are children. So 80% were under five years old. And moreover, adults get infected too, and we don't know too much about What that means but signs are that it could be way worse than we have thought previously both in terms of them being unable to work where they have malaria or care for their sick children but also in them being permanently suffering from this parasite and and that also makes the potential gains all the all the greater of eliminating it
1: we'll hear more from sandre later in the show as we dig into the data behind the challenge of eradication But first, it's worth noting that stamping out malaria is far from a new idea.
3: It's interesting, you know, if you look back at the history of malaria, as long as humans have been dealing with it, we have been trying to eliminate it.
1: Jennifer Gardy works on the malaria team at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, one of the organization's leading funding efforts to fight the disease.
3: Malaria control efforts really date far back. We've got reports of Cleopatra, for example, sleeping under a bed net. Um, Chinese medicine texts going back to the fourth century talk about treating fever with a plant called Artemisia, which has now actually given rise to artemisinin, one of our most important drugs in the fight against malaria. Even uh, in European history, you see malaria control efforts going back centuries. I know that when Versailles was being for example. Construction workers were falling ill, and so the French kings ordered the swamps to be drained to try to get rid of the local mosquito population. But uh, it wasn't, I think, until the 19th century when we really figured out the link between the parasite, the plasmodium parasite, and the Anopheles mosquitoes that carry it, that you started to see really intensified efforts towards elimination
1: Elimination efforts depend on the one hand on getting rid of the mosquitoes.
3: When we talk about elimination, we're talking about a specific country. Has malaria been eliminated in you know, China, in the United States, in the United Kingdom? So getting into houses, spraying insecticides like DDT on the walls, and that really um, drove a lot of the elimination efforts in places like the United States, in places like Europe, throughout the 40s and 50s.
1: But reducing the mosquito population isn't the only way to fight malaria there are also medicines that tackle the malaria parasites themselves.
3: If you look at indigenous South Americans, they had known for centuries, millennia really, that you could use the bark of the Chinchona tree to treat fevers. And from that, we found the drug quinine. And in the 1940s, that got turned into a synthetic version of that chloroquine, which started being used rapidly around the world, particularly sub-Saharan Africa. 1970s, we had the development of artemisinin from that artemisia or wormwood plant. So all these tools that we suddenly had available to us mid-20th century and some of those early elimination successes in places like the US and places like Europe got the community really excited about eradication. When we use that particular word, we are talking about zero disease anywhere in the world, eradication and zero malaria
1: worldwide. With all this in mind, in 1955, the World Health Organization launched the Global Malaria Elimination Programme. But the
3: problem was it wasn't exactly a global program, despite having the word global in the name. It actually excluded Africa. And the approach that it was putting forward was something that really worked best in places where malaria transmission was very seasonal. And what we saw over time, too, is that parasites and the mosquitoes, they will develop resistance to our tools. So you had a number of factors, including things like population growth working against us, resistance to the tools, increasing burdens of disease, the fact that we just hadn't directed any control efforts whatsoever to sub-Saharan Africa. So you ended up with this big surge in the 80s and 90s as malaria bounced back in some of the places where this elimination program had made a dent. It even came back in some countries that had eliminated. So it's always this sort of cat and mouse game.
1: After malaria cases surged again in the 1980s and 1990s, the focus of the elimination effort shifted to countries where the disease had the highest burden on health care.
3: Since 2000, we've seen incredible declines in malaria case incidents. We've got effective interventions, things like bed nets and spraying. You've got tremendous political will, money being thrown at this issue. And between 2000 and uh, 2015, we saw dramatic reductions in the number of global malaria cases and deaths. So this kickstart of our eradication efforts really worked. I mean, we estimate that we've saved something like almost 11 million lives, probably prevent close to 2 billion malaria cases since the year 2000.
1: That is an incredible achievement. But the momentum against malaria seems to have slowed in recent years.
3: Interestingly, we've seen just since about 2015, 2016, that progress is stalling again. We're at another phase in the race where the parasite and the mosquito are starting to pull ahead. That funding has sort of flatlined. Population growth in places like Africa mean that even if our incidence rates are declining, the raw case counts are actually increasing. We've got that resistance issue that we're always dealing with, whether it's resistance to the anti-malarial drugs, resistance to the insecticides the mosquito population. And you couple that with things like humanitarian emergencies, whether it's weather disasters, things like the COVID pandemic. So we now find ourselves at this turning point in, in the journey, the quest for eradication. And it's the time to make another big push if we really, really want to get things
1: back on track. To find out how likely that big push is, I asked Jennifer to tell me about the very latest scientific tools in the fight against malaria.
3: We have a lot of tools in our arsenal right now, and we've got a lot of really cool tools coming down the pipeline as well. So what it's going to come down to is using what we have now and using those new transformative tools in a better and a smarter way. We know that it's not going to be one size fits all, one intervention everywhere in a country. It's got to be a very bespoke approach.
1: Okay, well, let's start with some of the technologies we know about and, you know, how they're developing and how they can be used more effectively. I mean, bed nets, for example, the simplest things of all, you know, these are implicated in reducing the incidence of malaria. How will they feature in this next generation of technologies to try and uh, eradicate the disease?
3: That nets are one of our most effective interventions. You said it, they've contributed so much to those incredible declines in case counts and rates that we saw. And I think what's exciting in the net world, one is just making nets last longer. We know that nets get holes in them. We know that the insecticides that are impregnated into the fibers of that net lose some of their effectiveness over time. So how can we make nets just more durable, simple technological fix there. But what I'm super excited about in the NET space is the potential for new insecticides. Right now, we use a class of compounds called the pyrethroids. And the problem is that pretty much everywhere where there's malaria, the mosquitoes have become resistant to pyrethroid-based insecticides. So there's a lot of work in looking into new insecticide molecules that work in very different ways. And there's one that's particularly exciting. It's a new insecticide called chlorfen appear and it's being put into a new type of bed net and just recently really exciting data came out from a trial testing those bed nets in the field and these new nets with this new type of insecticide actually reduced the number of malaria cases in the study region in Tanzania by 44 percent so pretty impressive reductions for a brand new product
1: that's that's great for a bed net I mean that's incredible
3: yeah It is incredible and it's got a really cool, uh, the mode of action is sort of neat.
1: And it's so simple too. I mean, you talked about um, chemicals. there. I mean, we've had anti-malarials for a long time. Um, Tell me how they're getting better and are there new drugs available for people too to treat malaria?
3: Yeah, so our current drug roster, we've got uh, six what we call ACT's, artemisinin combination therapies. And this is a artemisinin derivative. So a drug derived from that traditional Chinese medicine, the wormwood plant, coupled to a partner drug, a second drug. And these ACT's, they work really well and they're affordable too, which is one of the the biggest issues when you're talking about a disease with such a significant burden. Um, The problem is with any treatment, it's not going to work for Ever the parasite is always going to develop resistance, and what we've seen with artemisinins is in the Greater Mekong subregion, and increasingly in spots in sub-Saharan Africa, we are starting to see resistance to artemisinin. So the search is really on for new medicines.
1: And could you talk to me a bit about monoclonal antibodies too? I mean, are they something that um, are likely to make a difference in the next few years?
3: Yeah, this is something that I think just appeared on most people's radar as a result of the COVID pandemic. We heard about monoclonal antibodies being given to people that were sick to um, sort of rescue them. It's almost like an instant boost for your immune system. And what we're looking at for monoclonals in malaria isn't as much on the treatment side, but actually on the prevention side. Any of our listeners who have traveled to an area with malaria have probably taken malaria prophylaxis, the little pills that you start taking before 4 your trip and every day while you're there. And you might very reasonably be wondering, you know, well, if I can take these malaria prevention pills when I go on vacation, why aren't we just giving these to people in malarious areas everywhere all the time? So we actually do do a similar approach to that, something called seasonal malaria chemoprevention. And it's the notion that when malaria is very seasonal in an area, when transmission happens concentrated just into three, four, five months of the year, what you do is at the beginning of each of those months, you go out and you give children an ACT. You give them a malaria treatment and monoclonals show a lot of promise here because it's hard to get out into remote malarious places regularly once a month during transmission season. And ACTs are a three-day treatment and people might take the first pill, but they might forget about the second and the third pill. So wouldn't it be incredible if at the start of a malaria transmission season, we could give children a single injection of monoclonal antibodies that will boost their immune system, keep them from getting malaria during that transmission season, and it only requires just a single encounter with a nurse or an immunizer. So that's what we're looking for in a monoclonal space is really using them as an effective seasonal prevention tool.
1: And of course, people in the last two years have been talking a lot about vaccines and learned a lot about vaccines as a way of preventing illnesses. And last year, the World Health Organization finally approved a malaria vaccine. It's it's not as efficacious as people are used to with COVID vaccines. But I just wonder, finally, have we made the turn into seeing vaccines that will make a difference to malaria and, and be more effective?
3: We have. This is a really exciting moment. Uh, you know, it took 40 years of research and development to get us to this point where we've got the first ever malaria vaccine. But we know that's just the first step in what is going to be a, a long and really interesting journey. As you said, the current vaccine, what we call RTSS or Mosquirix, is not perfect. <laughs> we know that in an ideal world, we'd have a malaria vaccine that gives you something like 80% efficacy, really long-lasting protection, should be able to be used in kids and adults. RTSS isn't there, but as anybody that works in the vaccine space will tell you, rarely is the first vaccine for a disease the best vaccine. So we're really looking ahead to second-generation vaccines.
1: One of those second-generation vaccines has been designed at the University of Oxford by the same team that brought the world the AstraZeneca vaccine for COVID-19. Last year, my colleague Natasha Loder, the Economist's health policy editor, spoke to Adrian Hill for Babbage. He's the director of the Jenner Institute at Oxford and leads the charge on malaria vaccines.
0: You've found that in phase two trials that you have a vaccine that is something like 77% effective. And um, what's the significance of this vaccine being more than 75% effective?
4: So two points, really. Firstly, the WHO set 75% as a target for people to aim at in the days when the best result was 40 or 50%. And that seemed like a very distant target. So the WHO said, we'd like that vaccine by 2030, please, at the latest. So 77% in in, in 2021 is, is good progress. The other significance, of course, is it means that you're preventing about three-quarters of the episodes of malaria in the children you vaccinate. And that's really important when you remember that 400,000 people die from malaria every year. Most of those are in Africa, and most of those are young children under five years of age. So if you were able to reduce those malaria infections by 75%, for example, you would be saving hundreds of thousands of lives each year.
1: Professor Hill recently told The Economist that he's more optimistic than ever. His group hopes to apply for emergency approval from drug regulators for their malaria vaccines as soon as the phase three clinical trials are finished. That could be as early as September this year. And if all goes well, up to 200 million doses could be produced every year at the Serum Institute in India, one of the world's largest vaccine manufacturing facilities. Another type of malaria vaccine will use a technology that's become familiar during the COVID-19 pandemic. Here's Jennifer Gardy again.
3: The other area that we're really excited about is looking at mRNA. Vaccines, which of course burst onto the scene with the COVID pandemic and have proved incredibly effective. So right now, an mRNA vaccine for malaria is under development. Uh, The challenge here is what do you put in it? What is that little bit of mRNA that you want to put in the vaccine to teach your immune system what malaria looks like? So we're in that target selection stage right now. We're looking at you know tens of thousands of parasites from around the world trying to figure out what that most representative, best little bit of of mRNA might be. And it's a challenging process. Is there
1: any reason why mRNA shouldn't work?
3: It's definitely a wait and see approach. I think we're all cautiously optimistic that it will work, but this is a complicated parasite with a lot of different life stages. And, you know, even the the classic antigen that we're using now in the RTSS vaccine isn't perfect. So it it may not work, but we are gonna try (laughs) and We're gonna see it through as far as we can.
1: Vaccines will go a long way to reducing the number of malaria infections and therefore the wider burden of the disease. The vaccine era will actually begin later this year when the very first approved malaria vaccine, called RTSS, will be rolled out. One thing vaccines can't do, though, is stop mosquitoes from transmitting parasites in the first place. If scientists could find a way to do that... You can just imagine how effective it would be at preventing malaria. Minus one floor. This
0: is a level two containment facility.
1: And That's again. Federica Bernardini. She's a researcher at the Crisanti Lab in Imperial College London. Here she is giving us a virtual tour of her lab.
0: And we finally get into the actual facilities where we keep these mosquitoes at specific uh, temperature and humidity. And mosquitoes are kept into small cubicles with temperature that is set at 27 degrees and uh, humidity that is kept uh, around a value of 65%.
1: Dr Bernardini works on ways to genetically modify mosquitoes to interfere with how they reproduce.
0: In these facilities, we are surrounded by Anopheles mosquitoes. Some of these mosquitoes are wild-type mosquitoes, very similar to those that you would encounter in the field in Africa, for example. But some of these have been genetically modified. Uh, one of our team members was actually trying to catch female mosquitoes from a cage. You can hear the sound of. Thank you very, very much. We have some tools in the lab that allow us to inject the embryo of these mosquitoes with some molecular component that can be integrated, inserted in the actual genome of these mosquitoes in a very stable way. Which means... We want this genetic modification to be present in the genome of the mosquitoes that we are injected, but also to be transmitted to the offspring of these embryos once they develop, become adults and mate.
1: In the lab, researchers use two approaches to tackle malaria. One genetic modification makes the female insects sterile. The other pushes females to produce more male offspring, and male mosquitoes don't spread malaria. The genes of the mosquitoes are modified so that changes are also passed on to their young. Over the course of several generations, the modifications spread. The result is that the majority of mosquitoes in a population will eventually become either sterile or male. In this way, the population of mosquitoes eventually collapses. One of the biggest challenges for scientists like Dr. Bernardini is to work out how to ensure that the genes they modify are actually passed on between successive generations of mosquitoes. Normally, the chance of a particular gene being passed from one generation to the next is around 50%. But scientists have now developed a type of genetic technology that pushes the odds of inheritance to upwards of 99%. That technology is called a gene drive.
0: We have shown a few years ago that we were able to target a gene that when disrupted causes female sterility. And we monitored the increase of frequency of this modification in a, a caged mosquito population. And in a few generations, the actual frequency of the gene drive reached 100% frequency. And this obviously is going to impact reproduction of mosquitoes to the point that the population would be completely collapsed.
1: Is the idea that these mosquitoes that you're editing would be essentially removed from the worldwide population or would they be released in certain areas and just eliminate uh, mosquitoes and malaria in, in those areas?
0: The answer is not as straightforward because... Malaria is a rural disease that is affecting vast areas in Africa. And at the moment, we have a team of entomologists and collaborators in Africa that are running a lot of experiments to understand the population structure of these mosquitoes in those areas where we are uh, operating. So technically, when we move from the lab to the field, uh, whether the use of this technology would bring to the uh, collapse or the target mosquito population in the wild or not would depend on many parameters in terms of the size of the target population first and the efficiency of our technology when transferred in the wild, which is the reason we ran the first pilot experiment.
1: Also, there's the ethical issue, I suppose, of reducing a population of any organism to zero, even if there are very clear positives. And I guess the the ecological side of it is that mosquitoes will play some sort of other ecological role in their environment. They might be spreading uh, malaria, but that's not the only thing they're doing in that environment. So I wonder if you sort of wrestle with these sorts of questions too, or at least work with other scientists to sort of help to understand those things.
0: We are already running a lot of experiments with collaborators in Africa. What we are doing is to gather as much data as we can by uh, looking at the environment and monitoring these mosquitos and the role into those ecological niches and to uh, understand what the risk for the application of uh, our technology will be and obviously without the approval not just of the communities that will be directly affected by this but also for the national regulatory uh, authorities uh, without their approval, without that permission, there would be uh, not importation on any transgenic mosquitoes in those areas.
1: What's the timeline, do you think, for getting the gene drive mosquitoes out into the wild, at least in the first trials? And then eventually, if it works, how long might you take before it becomes a way of tackling malaria in certain parts of the world?
0: I can't really answer that question because each step experiments that we are doing are currently under, you know, regulatory approval. So I would envision this to take a few years, definitely. And if we get the approval for this technology to be implemented in the field, uh, again, predictions can be very hard to be made because... We are still collecting all those data that will allow us to do some mathematical modeling to predict what will potentially happen. But because of the self-sustaining nature of this technology, I think I could uh, say that from the release of gene drive mosquitoes, if that happen in uh, a specific area of Africa the impact of this technology on the target mosquito population could be seen within a few years, probably.
1: So in this programme, we're looking at all the different types of ways that people are trying to tackle malaria. You know, yours is kind of probably the most futuristic and advanced, but there are lots of other ways. And I just wonder, as a researcher in the field of malaria, how confident are you that this disease might be on the path to being eliminated?
0: My answer would be... Although those traditional methods have been effective, the development of resistance is not going to be taken away by increasing the number of insecticide, or anti drugs. Uh, resistance it is a problem and it stays a problem no matter how much more you would implement. So... This means that what we are doing could really change the game because in all the experiments that we have been running in the lab, we have never encountered resistance to this technology. So to answer your question, I think that we definitely are in need of new tools and new technologies. Malaria is still killing a child every minute. Whether this is going to end up malaria or not, I can tell you there is a very good potential, but we will see, I guess. (laughs) Hopefully, we will see.
1: Jennifer, you're the lead for malaria data and epidemiology at the Gates Foundation. Can I just ask you how much of a difference you think that genetically modified mosquitoes will actually make in the wider efforts to eradicate malaria?
3: It will make a difference, but it'll make a difference one day. That day is still a little bit far off. The science is showing us that this technology does work extremely well in the lab and in lab settings that mimic the outdoor world. It's giving you this incredible potential for a very bespoke targeted vector control in a way that we've never had before. And I think the returns from this technology can be really huge. If you look in places in Asia and Latin America, there's actually a program right now, the World Mosquito Program, that is doing something that's conceptually similar. They're releasing mosquitoes that carry a bacterium called Wolbachia. And many years ago, scientists observed that if a mosquito is infected with Wolbachia, it can't transmit arboviruses, things like dengue, things like Zika. So, So the idea of the World Mosquito Program is, you know, can we release these Wolbachia infected mosquitoes? They're not genetically modified. They're just carrying this bacteria in their system. They have a normal life. They just can't carry these viruses. And when you release infected mosquitoes in particular areas, you see up to 75% reduction in cases of these arboviruses. So I think the potential is, is very, very real. But again, this is something that it's a long way off.
1: Okay, well, let me ask you this question plainly then. What will it take for all of these approaches and technologies and ideas and this focus to really make a difference
3: I think we could do this. You know, we do have the tools, but what it is going to take at the end of the day is money and political will. And I think we've got a great opportunity ahead of us this year with the Global Fund Replenishment. This is where over half the world's dollars for malaria prevention and control comes from. We're going to need $18 billion for this current Global Fund Replenishment. But it's a tremendously effective investment. It's estimated to be able to save 20 million lives over the next three years, generating $31 worth of returns for every dollar we spend. If we put enough money and enough attention against the problem, we can get there.
1: Just to conclude, you seem very positive about the future, but people have been saying for you know at least 50 or more years, that we were going to eradicate malaria, and it's just not happened. But there seems to be something quite exciting about the suite of new technologies and new ideas and new approaches and new funding and political will. I just wonder if you think that we've turned a corner now with malaria, where these new technologies, this new will, is actually going to get us to the point where we can eradicate it.
3: We have turned a corner, we've definitely turned a corner. We have an incredible array of very effective tools. It's about getting the right interventions to the right places. So I'm confident that between the toolbox and our sense of the approach, not just the what we're gonna do, but the how we're going to do it, this time we'll get that big push, we'll get eradication in our lifetime.
1: It's undeniable that these new strategies to tackle malaria are promising. Like Jennifer, it's hard not to feel positive about the future as well. Coming up, I'll ask The economist Sondre Solstad if the data match my optimism. How much of a difference can these new tools make and is eradication really possible?
2: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
3: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Today, we've explored various new ideas aimed at finally eradicating Malaria. Sandre Solstad, the Economist's senior data journalist, has been doing the same and also doing what he does best, crunching the numbers. Thanks for joining me, Sandre. Can you give me a sense of how excited I should be about uh, things like vaccines and genetically modified mosquitoes? How much can they actually turn the tide against malaria? I think you should be
2: pretty excited in the sense that the potential is is great. So I spoke to modelers at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and they told me that even with existing tools, you could sort of ramp out interventions and, and get a 75% reduction within a decade. Now, if you add on all these other tools, that moves from a plausible scenario to, to more of a, you know, this could really happen scenario. And so a 75% reduction in the rate of malaria incidence would be enormous, both in life saved and in the economic benefits.
1: So cutting incidence by 75%, that sounds remarkable. I mean, can you put this into perspective for me? How much of a difference might that make if it was all possible?
2: Yes, I mean, it will be huge. So Africa has a rapidly growing population, especially in the areas which have a lot of malaria. So compared to staying at current levels, this would save a huge number of lives, potentially. So by 2034, the annual numbers of deaths averted would be greater than the annual numbers of lives lost to breast cancer. And in total, over three decades, we're looking at 20 million lives saved, which is roughly the same number as has been lost to the pandemic so far, according to our modeling. Uh, moreover, the years of life saved would be vastly greater because the people who die of malaria are so young.
1: And, and economic impacts as well. I mean, adults who get malaria have to go off work. Kids who get malaria have to be looked after by their parents and so on. And so there, there are lots of days of work lost. Um, do we have a sense of how much economic impact it would be to you know, really ramp out these technologies?
2: Yes. So I spoke to the modelers and what they told me is that for a rough estimate, you can think about three days of work lost for every case of malaria. And so if you're looking at a 75% reduction in incidence, then that would be about 14 billion days of work that you would gain over over about two decades, uh, which is the equivalent of the annual labor supply of Nigeria at the moment. But there are also other things which are less well understood but might be equally important. So non-fatal cases of malaria in children can have long-term consequences in what we elected to call long malaria. Now, that is something that researchers are still looking into, but in reducing that too, you would have economic benefits and, of course, human benefits in people being able to live fuller, richer lives.
1: I think people are probably familiar now with the idea of long COVID, the idea that viral infections can have impacts many weeks, months, or even years after infection. And the interesting thing is that this is the case for a lot of diseases. I've never heard of long malaria. And um, What do we know about long malaria?
2: We know not too much. So what we do know is that if you compare children who had severe cases to those which did not in the same communities, the children who had severe cases tended to do worse in school, even many years after. What people are sort of figuring out now, going by what the researchers told me, is that even the children who do not have severe cases of malaria might have long-term consequences or might see some long-term consequences of even milder infections. And even that some of the worst consequences can be in children which didn't appear to be extremely ill. So this is something that they're still trying to figure out, but it's very hard to research. And this is you know, where the field is moving, so we'll know in a couple of years,
1: I suppose. Now the sort of $64 billion question the sort of hope, the dream for people in this field has been to eliminate malaria altogether. Do you think that given all the new tools that are coming on stream and all the modeling that you've done and scientists have done, do you think that elimination is something that might be possible? So I, I
2: think first, the big picture is that we have the tools to severely reduce malaria incidence already. And with these new tools, we can reduce it even more. And so even that would be a huge gain when it comes to eradication, it might seem you know, overly optimistic, but it has happened in many countries. Malaria used to be widespread in the United States, in Japan even, pretty much all over the world. But now it's mostly contained in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia and a few other areas in the tropics. So we, we do have the tools to eliminate it, at least in, in most places. And even if we don't eliminate it entirely, reducing the incidence would have massive benefits. So I think there's real reason to be hopeful. But the big picture thing is that these scenarios that we outline are scenarios where we ramp up investment and funding and where there is political support, where uh, this is you know a big push scenario. It could be that that doesn't happen and we simply continue on as before. And what would happen then would be that we would see population growth in malarious countries and a lot more people suffering from it.
1: So a lot more of it that depends on political will. But I'm going to take something positive out of this, because I think this is the first time I've heard anyone talk about elimination of malaria with positivity rather than a withdrawn sort of voice. So, Sondre, it's been excellent talking to you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks also to Jennifer Gardi and Federica Bernardini for lending their expertise on malaria this week. And thank you for listening to Babbage. You can read Sondre's reporting and take a look at his excellent modelling on vanquishing malaria by subscribing to The Economist. Get your best introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. There's a link in the show notes. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin, and the mixing and sound design this week was by Saul Rivers. The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Alok Jha, and in London, this is The Economist.